Hey there, and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast, streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email. We send this out once a week. It's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online. Apart from that, there is a give button. So if you're feeling led, you can do that right online through our website. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube. We are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that God's going to do something special in you through today's message. Enjoy. Hey, have you guys ever seen a product, and I know you have, that has been oversold and then it underdelivers? Yeah, you're laughing because you're like, oh, I got caught in that scam, right? We've all seen those late night commercials, or maybe you've been, has anyone ever been to a home show? My family always used to go to the PE and walk through the home show, and my parents would get absolutely rinsed. Like they would get swindled for whatever product it was, for like, you know, like that pan that won't stick, and then you wash it once, and it's a dud after that. Or those miracle knives that are actually not good at all, or maybe they there was, there was always those cleaning products that could get any stain out of absolutely anything, and you could drink it too. <laughs> like, as if, like, that was really, like, high on my priority list of, like, I want to get something out of the carpet, but in case I get thirsty while I'm scrubbing, I want to be able to take a swig, right? So we've all seen those products, or, or like, that magical taper spray that should replace your plumber, Right? We've all seen these products that are advertised and they, they uh, overpromise and then they underdeliver. Then when we come to use them, we're kind of devastated with the result. It didn't stand up to the claims. Now, the first time I ever really experienced the sadness and the devastation of marketing that didn't go the way that I thought it was going to was with a product called Moon Shoes. Does anyone remember these things? Okay, I'm aging myself with this story significantly, but for those of you who are watching online and maybe can't see the picture, I don't know how to describe them other than like trampolines for each individual foot. And in these commercials that I would see on TV, these kids would be like getting just absolutely launched into the stratosphere in these things. And I was like, I want that. And then my desire for these moon shoes grew even deeper when in the fall that year, I beheld their glory inside a Sears catalog. Yeah, there is a generation in here that is completely checked out. You will never know the glory and the joy of flipping through a Sears catalog and then creating your list of things that your parents should then buy, right? Like page 400, F, 1B, or however it was. So, I'd seen these moon shoes. I wanted them really badly. Now, luckily, my parents were wise enough not to get them for me, but I had a friend who had them, and I remember the first time I strapped them on, and I was going on my maiden voyage. And as I'm sure you can imagine, it was just absolutely anticlimactic. Like, I'm certain I could have jumped higher just in my bare feet. 
They let me down. They very much disappointed me. They overpromised and they underdelivered. Now, here's the thing: is that even the greatest and best made products, even the products that deliver on what they are advertised, the reality is they're still going to let us down, right? That ultimately, if there is anything that in some level, on some degree, we think we're going to find a sense of fulfillment in it, those things are going to always ultimately let us down. Now, at the end of the message, so this is clickbait so that you hopefully bear with me throughout the sermon, we are, I'm going to explain to you and we're going to discover why it is that these earthly things could never bring us the fulfillment that we might be looking for in them. This morning, we are going to be looking at figures from the Old Testament. We're going to be continuing our sermon series. And as we do, we're going to see men and women who place their faith, their hope, and their trust in God. And what we're going to see is that what they place their faith, their hope, and their trust in, unlike the things of this earth, it did not disappoint. Hebrews, or sorry, not Hebrews, Romans 5, 5 tells us the one thing that does not disappoint, and that is hope. Hope that is founded and grounded on faith in the living God and on his word will not disappoint us. And this is what we are going to see and discover this morning through the testimony of these lives of faith from the Old Testament. Now, one thing that I want to make clear is that unlike the cheesy commercial for moon shoes, these statements that we are going to hear today in Hebrews, these are not unfounded claims. All right? This type of faith, this type of hope, it has been product tested. It has been tested in the marketplace of real human life for centuries. And it has proven to be so strong and so worth it, even in the face of death, that it has made men and women conquerors at the end of their time here on earth. So, If you haven't done so already, or if you're not aware, we are in a sermon series in the book of Hebrews, and we are in Hebrews 11. So if you have a Bible, jump to Hebrews 11. Now, last Sunday, we dipped our toes into Hebrews 11. We did just the first six verses, and we talked about faith, and we talked about real faith, what it is, kind of how the Bible describes it, and what it looks like. Now, As I was preparing the message this morning, I really did struggle with where to go next in Hebrews because ultimately what I think would be a lot of fun would be to break down Hebrews 11 and take almost a Sunday at a time to look at the life and stories of these people. Like I think that would be a really cool kind of sermon series all on its own. But as I was studying and preparing, I discovered and realized one thing, that no matter how much or how little we might know about some of the people mentioned in the following passages, the main theme and the main thrust of Hebrews 11 is always and just going to remain and stay and be this, that it's all about what God can do and will do through us when we place our faith and hope in him. That is, at the end of the day, the main message, that there are amazing things that God can and will do through us when we place our faith in him. So let's take a look at God's word together, and I'm just going to warn you in advance, it is my 
objective to get right to the end of Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. All right, but right now we're just gonna we're just gonna bite off one verse just to get started. Verse seven from Hebrews 11. By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I'm just going to stop there. Let's talk about Noah for a second. Now, here's the thing. Even from these short snapshots that we're going to get of these people's lives, we are going to see God working in their lives in powerful ways because of their faith. Now, Hebrews 11 has a bit of a pattern that we're going to discover, and it's already been laid out in previous verses. What happens is the paragraphs usually begin by saying, by faith, and then it's like, insert name here. And then often after that, it will describe the situation that they're in or the challenge that they are up against. And then there'll be a comma. And then after that, it describes how they overcame, what they conquered or what God did as a result of their faith. This is the pattern. And what I want us to see this morning, my hope this morning, is that as we even just take really short glimpses at the lives of these people, we see and discover people that we can identify with. I firmly believe that when we look and consider the stories and the situations that these people faced and were up against and the things that God was asking them to trust him with, that there isn't a single person in the building this morning or watching online now or in the future who will not find a person or a situation that you cannot identify with. So let's just take a look at Noah story tells us that God tells him, hey, you should build an ark because something's going to happen. And it's crazy because it's something that has never happened before. Most Bible scholars, and this is the camp that I put myself in, will believe and say that prior to the flood, it never rained on earth. So Noah had to, by faith, believe that something that had never happened before was going to take place. Now, I get it. He built the massive ark, something in like from the clouds was going to happen that you'd never seen before. That part can feel surreal. That part can feel hard to identify with. But here's what we need to do. If you can stop for one second and don't just look at what God was calling him to do, do, because you might not always identify with the task they were called to. Don't just focus on what God called them to do, but focus and look at what God was asking him to trust him with in the process. Because then we can identify with Noah in a major way, right? You may not have ever been asked to build an ark because something was coming that you'd never seen before, but as a result and in pursuit of that, what Noah had to do was trust God with his future. What Noah had to do was trust God with his family. What Noah had to do was he had to let God reprioritize his priorities. Like we don't know 100% concretely what Noah did for a career. Now, after he gets off of the ark, after the flood is over, Scripture does mention that he was a man of the soil, but scholars debate whether that means he became a farmer after or he was functioning as a farmer before. But regardless, when God asked him to come and build this ark and pursue this thing and place his faith on him, it would have hijacked his life. 
I think no matter what, whether you've been called to build an ark or not, whatever God has called you to, you can probably identify with Noah in some degree. Have you ever had to trust God with your family? Trust God with your future and place your faith in the promises of what he was going to do in the coming years. Because if you have ever felt that, you can identify with this man. Another thing that I love is that Noah is so convinced about what God is going to do that he shares it with others. Now, this verse says that Noah condemned the world right? He condemned the world is, is the wording in this passage. But scripture also describes Noah as a preacher of righteousness. Some translations will actually refer to him as a herald of righteousness. That means he used his words to proclaim to the people at that time to pursue righteous living. It's not an assumption to say he was calling them to repentance during this time. Like Noah wasn't just like in the back 40 building an ark because he was like, okay, God called me to do this thing. It's a little crazy. It's a little insane. I'm going to be obedient, but I'm going to be obedient in private. No, he was so convinced that he was obedient to God in public and he made it clear to those that he heralded that they should walk in righteousness as well. This is what he did. And I feel like this should be a challenge for us because it's one thing to walk in faith during your prayer time at home when the doors are closed or in here in the church where we feel like it's comfortable and safe. But do we have faith that is now leaving this building and going out into the public marketplace where we are being advocates for righteous living and faith in the real living God? This is what Noah was doing. And he did this, this passage says, because he had this sense of holy fear. Now, in the Bible, one of the most common topics that you come across throughout the whole of Scripture is fear. And we are told not to have fear. Yet, at the same time, we are told that there is a good and healthy kind of fear. We are told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord... You could also look at it as reverence for God and reverence for his word, as in putting his word before anything else in our lives. That type of reverence and fear for God, that is a good fear. When we revere him above all else, this is the type of holy fear that Noah had. God said it was going to be so. He believed it with all of his heart, and that compelled him not just to in his word, but in his deed as well. And is this the type of faith that we have in God's word, that it leads us and is going to result in a holy fear in our lives? Like, do you have, and you know what, don't put your hand up, but I just want you to really think about this. Do you have faith in God's word? Do you have faith in God's word? Because if in your mind and in your heart right now, you are saying, yes, I do, here is the thing. If you have faith and you firmly believe that what the Bible says is true and you believe that Uh, Jesus has come and God has pardoned our sins, if you believe God has pardoned your sins, you also have to believe that God is not going to leave sin unpunished. 
You can't just pick one side or the other. You need to believe both sides. It is true. It is in scripture. And that should lead us to hopefully have a reverence for God's word and a holy fear that drives us to want to share the gospel with those who do not know Jesus. This is a good type of holy fear. Reverence for his word should compel us to want to reach the lost. Is this the type of faith that you have in God's word? Do we have the type of faith that we can trust God with our family, our lives, our futures, or even where we are called to live? Jumping into verses 8 to 12 now. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand of the seashore. And do you know that if you are in Christ this morning, uh, you are counted amongst his descendants? Like, I think that's so cool that I am one of those little grains of sand on the seashore that God said would be would come as a descendant of Abraham and his faith in God. This is so awesome. Abraham trusted God. And we see just from this little snapshot of his life, he trusted God with where he should live, where he should move, and then ultimately with his family. Now first, we see that he's called to leave everything that he had ever known in pursuit of where God was calling him to. He had to leave everything he had known to move to where? Well, he didn't know. And like, I think that is incredible. And do we see how relatable that is? Like, has God ever called you? And I hope that he has. Has he ever called you out of your comfort zone? Yeah? Has he ever called you to move out of a, way, a place or a space or some area of your life where you feel deeply rooted, where maybe you like in that place, you're like, hey, I can picture the next two, four, five years. And then all of a sudden he comes along and he calls you to something and he hijacks your plan. And now you're like, I cannot see past next week. This is what God's call for Abraham would have been like. It's this call that sometimes doesn't make sense. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've experienced that in your life. Responding to a call that God lays on you that doesn't fully make sense. I've been there multiple times. In fact, one time when I was in college, I was trying to discern uh, what God was calling me to do. And, and I had a mentor and he said to me, he said, and I wrote it down, I couldn't remember exactly, and I, I texted him, and he said, if you think God's calling you to something, and it's so crazy, that you would never tell yourself to do it, there's a good chance that might be God. 
right? That was like one of the litmus tests. It was like, if you have feeling like maybe God's leading me somewhere and it's like, I would never tell Ross to do that. That might be God leading you in that direction. And I would say, add on to this, especially if the direction he wants you to walk in is a good one. And especially if it would require you to trust him even more and push you even further into his arms. It's a good way to discern things. So Abraham, he moved. Like, and once again, could we, can we just try and identify with this man for a second? Like, imagine going to work tomorrow and handing in your two weeks notice and saying, I'm moving. And then they say, why? And you say, because God told me. Okay, if you came and told me that I'm a pastor and I would still look at you and be like, are you okay? I'd be like, okay, let's, like, let's try and discern this. Let's suss this out a little bit. Are you really sure? And then I probably would follow up and be like, okay, where's he leading you? And then you'd go, yeah, he left that part out. Like this, we laugh because we're like, this is, that's bananas. That was no different for Abraham, especially at the age of 75. This is when he gets this call. Yet he still moves. Let's be honest, in the eyes of the world, this call and this faith, it makes zero sense. It makes zero sense. And that's the thing. Sometimes God is going to call us to do things that appear alien to those around us. But that isn't a bad thing, and that is okay. We don't need to know everything before we go. I actually just saw a quote this week from Craig Groeschel. It popped up on Instagram, and he said, you do not need to understand completely to obey immediately. I love that, and that is what we can see from Abraham. I'm sure this guy had more questions than answers, but he gets up and he goes as God has called him. What he is doing is he is using God's word as the lamp unto his feet and the light unto his path. And like, we love that verse, right? I love that verse. I love that verse on on a coffee mug when I'm all snuggled up at home. You know when I don't like that verse when it's hard is when I'm actually in the dark and I need a lamp. That's when this verse gets really difficult. Or when God's word starts to light a path that seems to conflict or push against what I think common sense is or push against or maybe put at risk what I think my bank account should look like or the future that I had planned or it's going to challenge my fears or it's going to challenge my faith. At those moments, it's really hard for his word to be the lamp unto your feet. But for Abraham, it was, and he walked in simple obedience in pursuit of God, placing his faith and trust in the Lord. He moves, and then what we see him do is is because he doesn't end up. God says, this is the land you're going to get, and he doesn't, unfortunately, get the opportunity to possess it himself, so he pitches his tent. And I just think it's so wild that he literally, physically camps out on God's promise. He's like, I firmly believe that God is going to give us this land, just like he said. And in the meantime, he awaits the arrival of that son that God said he was going to have. Now, once again, let's be honest. This man was not fit to be a father, 
right? Like, I'm not saying he was, like, belligerent and couldn't handle kids. I mean, he probably most likely shouldn't have been capable to produce offspring. This is what Scripture says. I actually think it's, it's like, the writer of Hebrews was rude. Like, have you noticed how savage they were when they described this man in, his, in referring to his old age? You're like, yeah, he was as good as dead. I would never have referred to my Oma and Opa that way. Like, this is like heartless. But this is the reality. He's like, they were beyond childbearing years. This shouldn't have happened. And I love the fact that if you go back and know Abraham and Sarah's story, this wasn't something that they were oblivious to. This is something, again, that I think is so relatable. Because back in Genesis, when God comes and tells Abraham that he's going to have a son, Abraham, it actually says he like falls on the ground and he laughs. Both him and Sarah. When Sarah later hears, both of them respond almost verbatim saying, is, is, a, is a son really going to actually be born to a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman? I love this because I think we can identify with those feelings where we sit there and we're like, it's difficult for me to align what seems like reality with what the promises of God say. And even despite their moments of like wondering, maybe not wavering, but definitely wondering and looking around and being like, how could this be so? Here they are still being celebrated for the faith and hope that they placed in God. I think this is something that we can certainly identify with because we have had those same moments where we've struggled to understand through our human mind and our human logic how God is going to show up. Maybe you've been in a season in your life where you feel like the clock has wound down. The party is over. He missed his exit. He didn't make it. And he still shows up. That is how Abraham and Sarah felt at this time. So if that is you, if you feel like you're in that season and you feel like you feel like the clock has hit zero and he didn't show up, like maybe you threw up your flare and he clearly never saw it, I want to encourage you to hold on. Abraham and Sarah alone waited almost 25 years for the promise of this son. And when the moment when they thought this is never going to happen, God arrived and gives them a son. I want to encourage you, no matter what season you're in, to hold on to the promises of God. And you know what? I'll even go so far as to say this. Would you be able to, that even if the thing that you're praying and hoping God to do in your life or in the lives of your family, if you were to be called home to be with him, and as your cl eyes closed and you went to heaven, would you still in that moment have faith to believe that what God said would be done would be done? Because this is the level of faith we now see from the people in the Old Testament. Verses 13 to 16. All these people were still living in faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. But instead, they are longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. All these people were still living by faith when they died. 
They did not receive the things promised. I got to be honest with you. I used to read that and be like, I don't see the encouragement in that verse. I got to be honest. That these people had been told God was going to do a thing and died without seeing it. I was like, how is that encouraging? But then I realized that it, it is encouraging if I have my eyes fixed on the right prize. See, if your hope is just in the promise and not in the promiser, then you're going to get let down. But when your ultimate hope is to just be closer to the one who has given you the promise, then you will never be disappointed. And that is the sense that we get from these patriarchs. That they were not offended by the fact that God said, you're going to get this land, and then they died without ever getting that land. They didn't see that as a contradiction to God's goodness or his faithfulness. They lived their life. I love that it says that they saw it from a distance and they welcomed it. It was like, hey, I don't need to be the one to experience that firsthand for it to be true. If he said it would be so, it will be so. I think this is such an incredible level of faith that the Bible is talking about here. That is what this verse is drawing out. That they had this sense and this view that their sights were on something that was beyond the here and now. Their focus wasn't just on what they could get. It was for future generations and it was ultimately to be in heaven. For them, God's promises that it wasn't, and I, I love this because I know I haven't had this attitude before and I need this. For them, God's promises weren't a question of if, they were only a matter of when. That is how sure and concrete they were about God and the things that he was going to do so that even in the face of of their death, they still clung to faith and they professed it over the coming generations. That is why our author now pushes in to focus on a number of accounts of people who were speaking faith on their deathbed or in the face of death. Verses 17 to 22. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, Abraham reasoned God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regards to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Jacob's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. They had faith even in the face of death. Abraham had this confident faith when, it came, when God called him to sacrifice Isaac, firmly believing that no matter how that situation would pan out, God has the ultimate victory over death. Like, that is how confident his faith was. And this is the type of faith that he then instilled and passed down as we see through these passages to the coming generations. Abraham instills through his life this faith on his son Isaac 
then Isaac has this faith and then put, puts it onto his son Jacob. And he, they don't just put this faith. What they're doing is even in their dying days, this is what is so amazing to me. Even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not see the fulfillment of the promises of God for their people in their lifetime, in their dying breath, they looked to their kids and they said, God is worth every effort. He is worth being obedient to. He is so, so good. Is that not crazy? Like, could we do that? Could we be disappointed with how you might want to say the cards you get dealt in life? Could you be disappointed with those, not get everything you ever prayed for, and on your deathbed, look to your kids and say, no matter what, he's worth it. Follow him for all of his days because he has goodness in store for you. As if your personal experience isn't the contingent or the litmus test for the truth of his goodness and his faithfulness. Can we do that? Because this is what scripture says. This is what it reveals these men did. That Isaac passes it on by blessing his sons. Jacob continues this blessing when he invites Joseph's sons under the blessing. Now, another uh, actual detail in that is that Jacob is relying on God in this moment because it talks about him leaning on his staff. Well, earlier in his life, Jacob wrestled with God. God like popped his hip out. He walks with a limp. He needs the staff. This is a symbol, a visual representation that in this moment of blessing, he is resting and leaning and relying on God. And in the moment that he blesses Joseph's sons, Joseph actually placed the, the older son next to Jacob's right hand and the younger next to his left so that it would be more easy for Jacob to bless the oldest, which was customary, ahead of the youngest. And Jacob, leaning on his staff, trusting the leading of God, believing in God's promises and goodness, switches hands and blesses the younger over the oldest. He's relying, leaning on, and trusting God even in his dying days. And this is the faith that we see he passes on to his son, Joseph. And it's the faith that he exercises when he asks his family to bury him back in the promised land. Like, did you know that Jacob, uh, he lived the last 17 years of his lives, li- life He lived the last, let's try this again, take two. Did you know that Jacob spent the last 17 years of his life living in Egypt? The last 17 years of his life, he went with his family after they reunited with Joseph. They moved to Egypt. And arguably, this family, since Abraham left his home, was the most settled, the most comfortable, the most content, the most at peace that they had ever been for three generations. And he had lived there for 17 years with one of his sons being like one of the most powerful, influential people on the planet. And even despite all of that comfort and all that would have come with that, on his dying bed, he goes, take me to the promised land. Why? Because he didn't care about any of the things that he had in that moment. He was clinging to the promises of God, believing fully that even if he wasn't there now, even if he didn't see it for himself, God was going to do what he said he was going to do. So he asked to be buried back with Abraham. And he passes this faith on to Joseph. And I think this is crazy because, once again, Joseph would have had absolutely every 
earthly comfort you could think of back in that time. Like anything he could have had or he would have had. And despite the life that Joseph had in his dying days, the thing that he wanted to cling to most was faith in God just like his father before him. Because with his last breaths, Joseph would give his family these instructions. In Genesis 50, Joseph says, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he's promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Once again, we see this man being like, I don't care about all of this around here. I believe in God and his promises, and I'm going to cling to those. So he told them, when they go, take my bones with you. He's that confident. That's going to happen. It's a reality. Take me with you. I want to be with my people. And eventually, that is exactly what they would do. 400 years later, the exodus would take place, and the Israelites would leave Egypt. They would take his bones. They would walk to the Red Sea. They would go through the Red Sea with his bones. They'd walk across the desert. They'd go to Mount Sinai. Then they would wander around for 40 years. They'd go to the shores of the Jordan. The Jordan would part. They'd walk into the Promised Land. The walls of Jericho would fall. And later on, in the book of Joshua, it tells us in chapter 24, Joseph's bones, with the, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were then buried in Shechem. Because what this man wanted all along was to be with his people, not where they currently were, but where God was going to take them. And not because he saw it, but because he believed that if God said it would be so, it would be so. Is our faith this certain and absolute? Is our ultimate hope in God and not in this world? One commentator said, You must wait until the end of someone's life before you can say if they were a person of faith or not. Are we so convinced in our faith and the hope that God offers us that we are going to walk out continually an obedient life? The ultimate hope of these men and women was God. It was not the gifts that God might give them. It was not in the treasures of this earth. As we're going to see in the passages we're about to move into, what they wanted more than favor was a savior. That is what they wanted. That's what they were looking to. They were clinging to that promise. They valued God's Savior, the Messiah, the one that he was going to send. They valued and looked to that, and they longed for that more than they looked for or cared about favor here on earth. This is what we are going to see, that their longing for the things of God outweighed their circumstances We're in verse 23, and we're going to go right to the end of Hebrews 11 now this morning. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. How many of you have ever had a three-month-old? Would they be easy to hide? Yeah, I haven't, but I would just imagine not. Because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of, okay, I don't know what your translations say, but mine said, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ. But when we see the word Christ, like that's not Jesus' last name. Okay, did you know that? That's actually the Old Testament word for Messiah. 
So he regarded disgrace for the sake of the Messiah, the one God had promised. He decided that disgrace for the sake of the coming promise was of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Because he was looking ahead to, this, to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. And by faith the prostitute Rahab because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. You know, it's funny. I was preparing this sermon. I'm going to keep reading in a second and finish up our chapter. I was preparing the sermon, and even right up to this morning, as I was prepping and reading through my notes, I was wondering, why does they, do they stop at this example? And I just now, as I'm reading it, I realized, well, they took them the, to the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Like this was, Abraham got called to the promised land. That's kind of where it starts. And then it ends with the walls of Jericho falling and the story of Rahab because these are some of the first encounters of when they would enter into the promised land. We just saw a journey of faith from promise to fulfillment of these people entering into the land that God said he was going to give to them. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some some faced jeers and flogging while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated, and the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect? For the original readers of Hebrews, the original audience that this book and this letter was written to, one of the main points of this entire chapter was to help them realize the reality and discover that what God has always wanted and what he is pleased by is our faith and our trust in him and in his goodness. What he is pleased by is our faith and our trust in him, not by our actions, not by, by religious posturing. That is not what he wants. He wants sincere hearts. He wants hearts that trust him with, his whole, with our whole life. It is not of external works. He wants us to simply trust and obey him and live out lives of obedience, I thought about it this morning. I actually even looked up the lyrics and read the whole song. And if we had time, I would love to have read them all to you. But I, I, it just brought me to that song, Trust and Obey. For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. This is what 
our author is trying to get the reader, the original readers to understand. And we should be encouraged by their stories because it's telling us that even if we fumble, stumble, and bumble our way through this life, because if you know much of the background of the people that are mentioned, you know that's a reality. But even if we do that, even if we feel like our life of faith sometimes is clawing inch by inch to gain any ground or even to maintain the ground that we've had, I firmly believe that God is most pleased by that when we just trust him with our lives. Now, I just want to clarify that last verse there because it can seem a little bit confusing. The last verse of Hebrews 11. And what it is essentially saying is this, is that the faith that they had in the Old Testament has laid the foundation and should be the foundation for the faith that we carry on today. That's what it means, that our faith and their faith coincide and exist with one another. That they lived their lives looking, waiting, and longing for the coming Messiah. And now we live our lives having received him. So we should carry and walk in our lives with the same faith that they had. I would even go so far as to say with even stronger. Because we now have the living Holy Spirit in our lives that helps equip us and lead us and guide us and give us strength in moments of weakness. We with them should be clinging to, to the Messiah with hope because we now have been given the author and the perfecter of our faith. We should be spurred on by their example. That's why Hebrews now jumps in in chapter 12 with the very famous lines of, since we have been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run the race that has been marked out with perseverance before us. Like, I wish, like, I, I'm sorry. You guys would be like, I'm so glad you have a timeline. I wish I could just keep preaching through Hebrews because it is so powerful. We are surrounded by their testimony. Let us be encouraged by their story. And let us not be tempted like we so often are to dehumanize the people from the Old Testament. I think one of the primary reasons we struggle or get bored when we read the Bible is because we check out and we fail to see the humanity of these people. So we don't feel like we can identify with their stories. But what we need to remember is they are just like us. They were just as sad. They were just as lonely. They were just as poor. They were just as weak. They were just as insignificant. They weren't always powerful. They weren't always mighty. They were trepidatious at the call that God laid on their lives. Yet we look back now and we see these powerful men and women of faith. But you want to know what led them on that journey? You want to know what took their lives from ordinary to extraordinary? It was nothing other than their faith in God. That is it. That means you are not missing anything that you need for God to do something incredible in your life. That means it doesn't matter how young or old or ill-equipped you feel. Heck, the less ill-equipped, the better. The recipe for a life of faith well-lived has never changed throughout all of the centuries. It just demands continual faith in God. Can we do that? You don't have to bring anything special before that. All you have to do is come to him and place your faith in God. 
and he can transform our lives. God can use absolutely anyone. We just place our faith in him and we seek, I will always tell you this, so, and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. It's so easy to get caught up with the other things, but it says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Seek first his kingdom. That means seek first to always continually acknowledge that this is his kingdom, that he is king. And then seek first, I believe, to expand his kingdom. To share about what he has done with the lost. Seek first his righteousness. So seek first his kingdom and then seek his righteousness. Seek to live a righteous life, to walk in step with God and with Jesus. And then all these things will be added unto you. But I firmly believe if you're so focused on the first two, you're going to start to care less and less about the other things that are going to get added. We need to be obedient to God. And the mindset that it requires to seek his kingdom and live righteously is simply this. It's an eternal mindset. We've talked about it here numerous times. It's that mindset that looks beyond the here and now and that has its ultimate hope and treasures in heaven. Because I hate to tell you this. We don't often talk about this, but I, got, I have to tell you this because this is the truth. We are not promised or guaranteed wealth or significance or impact on this earth. No matter how great your faith is. You could have the strongest faith ever. And you are not guaranteed to have an easy walk and journey in this life. You are not guaranteed to have a bunch of riches and blessings here on this earth. But that should be okay. It was okay for the patriarchs. But I will tell you this. I cannot stand up here and tell you that if you just faith it till you make it, you're going to be a millionaire. You're going to get that job you want. I act. I don't believe that. You want to know what I do believe? I believe there is one thing that Scripture lays out for us, that there is one rich inheritance that is absolutely guaranteed that moth nor rust can never destroy or touch or ever take away. And that one thing that is guaranteed is the forgiveness of our sins because of what Jesus did on the cross and life everlasting. And that should be good enough. Because this is what, even in the Old Testament, this is what they had their sights on. It was on heaven. And this type of hope, I promise you, will not disappoint. I mentioned at the beginning of the service, I would explain why the things of this earth could never fulfill us. Well, it's because we were made for eternity. There was a French Christian philosopher, and he said it this way. He said, we are not earthly beings who have spiritual experiences. We are spiritual beings currently having an earthly experience. What that means is that because we were made for eternity, because we are spiritual beings, nothing on this earth could ever satisfy someone who is made for eternity. And if you put your hope in it, you're only going to make yourself devastated and you're going to set the product up for failure as well. Why? Because it was never intended to do that in the first place. Our hope should be on eternity and a life spent with Jesus. And ultimately, even more than that, our hope should be to live an obedient lifestyle so that when that day comes, we might have the honor of hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going to invite the worship team back up, and 
You know, I, I thought a lot this week about, about this sermon series. Really, like, I call it a sermon series, but about the last two Sundays, about this topic of faith. And this week, specifically, something stood out to me more, more than really anything else regarding faith. And this is how I want to end our, our time discussing this topic this morning. Something that I could not ignore this week is how inseparable the topic of faith is with obedience. With just simple, simple obedience. You know, we often want to talk about faith, faith for the big things, right? And that's okay. We often talk about faith for the healing or faith through the breakthrough or faith for for some kind of favor in our lives. And I think that is great. But what about that simple faith that just so believes God's word that we walk out obedient lives every single day? Hebrews 11.8 tells us that by faith Abraham, he obeyed. That his faith led him to obedience. And I want to just ask you this morning, are you being obedient to God? Are you being obedient to God in your daily life? Or are we sitting here and, and believing in faith that he's going to do something miraculous and huge in our lives while at the same time, neglecting to walk out obedient lifestyles with him daily. Because if that is you, I would strongly encourage you to reprioritize. We need to be walking in obedience with the Lord. Like I said, everyone wants to talk about the faith that conquers and the faith that overcomes. But I want us to talk about the reality of the faith that trudges through the mundane, that walks with him on the day-to-day We love to jump from, hey, Noah, build an ark, to, hey, the flood came and he lived. But what about the 100 plus years in between where he obediently followed the Lord, where he would have smashed his thumbs while he was building the boat or pinched his fingers or been covered in splinters or been head to toe in pitch when he was making this boat, when he would have lied down in bed and thought, am I insane? Is this ever going to happen? But he continued during the mundane and uncelebrated 120 plus years of just obedient faith. I want us to be those types of people. I want us to be the people who follow him in just simple obedience as a result of the faith that we have in him. Simple, obedient faith. Psalm 128.1 says, Blessed are those who fear the Lord and who walk in obedience with him. And I believe the closer we walk in obedience, the more likely we are to see those blessings. But I just want to take one second to explain one thing. This is the last thing I'm going to say. Is that don't do what I sometimes am so tempted to do. Don't read that verse and then rearrange it as if it's a formula. Right? Like sometimes I hear verses like this and I go, okay, blessed are those who fear the Lord and walk in obedience. So I'm going to fear the Lord, I'm going to walk in obedience, and then I'm going to get blessing. And then I fill in, I take, I erase the word blessing and I fill in whatever it is I think I deserve or want or need. I just want to say this. The ultimate blessing for walking in obedience with God is walking in obedience with God. Period. The end. That's enough. Church, if we are just an obedient church 
who walks daily, even in the mundane with the Lord, even as a Pentecostal church, if we never, and I don't believe this, but if, if we never saw a healing or a miracle or something absolutely crazy happen in our lives, but we were a people who walked daily in obedience with God, we would change the valley. This is what I want for you. This is what I want for us. And so we are going to get to communion shortly, but before we do, we're going to worship. We're going to sing a worship song here in a second. And I want to give you an opportunity this morning to be obedient. To be obedient. If you are here and maybe you, you've resisted being obedient for a while, we got three different ways you have the opportunity to be obedient to God's call on your life this morning. First and foremost, that's if you are here or watching online and you're feeling that tug and you have not responded in obedience to Christ's call for salvation, I want you to do that this morning. I'm not going to gussy it up. I'm not going to try and oversell it. I'm just going to tell you this. Jesus Christ died for your sins. That demands a response. Will you repent and believe and be obedient? Take that first step. You don't need to understand everything. Just take that step of obedience and faith today. And if you're here this morning and you want to do that as we worship, if you want someone to pray with you about that, come. Come to the front. I will happily pray with you as you take that step of obedience with the Lord. Number two, Second opportunity we have for obedience is by taking communion. We're called to take communion and to remember what Christ has done and also herald his second coming by doing it. So that's another way we'll be obedient is by celebrating communion after worship together. But the third way we have an opportunity to be obedient is this, is by checking our hearts and not letting another moment pass where we haven't been obedient to something God's been stirring up in our hearts. 1 Corinthians 11 says that we ought to examine ourselves before we eat of the bread and drink the cup. And if you are here this morning and you've been fighting the Lord in some area of your life, do not, I beg you, do not waste this opportunity. Do not waste and don't spend another second of your life not just walking in simple obedience to your Savior and to your Lord. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.